นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนะมะสังThis evening, I wanted to say a little bit more about the theme that we reflected upon last weekend. That is the learning to confidently not know. In what I said on that subject, I wonder if I didn't give the impression. That somehow this effort to be okay about not knowing was the goal of practice, and certainly that is not my intention. The goal is freeing our hearts from all greed, hatred, and delusion. It's, however, the reason I wanted to discuss that topic of Learning to be comfortable about not knowing is because we get obstructed there. We're addicted to a kind of having to know. We feel like we have to know all the time. We get embarrassed when we don't know. We love feeling sure, and as I think I pointed out, it's natural for our mind to want to be sure. It's perfectly understandable. However, if we develop the habit of feeding on that relative sense of security that comes from feeling like we know what's going on or what's going to happen, and then really we're feeding delusion. Because the fact is, a lot of the time we we don't know what we're doing and we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of life is is intensely uncertain, unsure. And quite frankly, unsafe. So, surrounding ourselves with ideas and feelings of certainty and security that are not based in reality is not wise. It's not skillful. It leaves us vulnerable, and and yet we keep doing it. We keep telling ourselves stories and and keep trying to convince ourselves that we know what we're doing. And so, I was encouraging. Us to all contemplate that this is a potential obstruction that we can do something about. We can we can recognize it. We can see this. How much I love to be sure and train our awareness. Like in meditation, when maybe spent some time intentionally developing tranquility and quietude and and. Nothing much seems to be happening, and this is something that often comes up in meditation practice. People will ask, "How do I know when I should be doing investigation?" Or conversely, where there's been contemplating various themes and investigating where we're at in our relationship with our, our emotional household and 
with it, our self-perception and, and such matters and and the mind seems to be all over the place and nothing gets resolved and so the question is how do I know whether I should be developing more tranquility? Well what we can know in that situation is that we don't know and that is true and it's so obvious that it almost seems like we shouldn't even have to mention it but the fact that we're making a problem out of not knowing and trying to push past it that can, as I'm saying, create obstructions, obstructing us to progressing towards the goal of practice. Mm. What can be useful, and what I would suggest is very useful, is to invest in, when we don't know, is to really acknowledge that. I don't know whether I should be doing this sort of practice or that sort of practice. I don't know whether I should continue reading this book or should I go and sit and do formal meditation. I don't know if I'm sitting too much meditation or I should do walking meditation. I don't know if I should point out to this person something they're doing that really is annoying me or should I just feel that feeling and, and bear with it. I don't know. Often in these situations the, the very useful thing to do is to give ourselves time to be with that and to consciously not know. So we're not pushing past it because if we're pushing past it then we can be kind of forcing in, in our compulsive controlling mode which we're all being conditioned to have confidence in. We love to control. So investing in learning to feel comfortable about not knowing can be a helpful way of loosening or getting another perspective on our compulsive tendencies to want to control everything. So that's one of the main points of of discussing that is to see how our addiction to always wanting to know and feel sure can get in the way of our progressing towards the goal and practice. Mm. And how we feel about the goal, I've often spoken about, also is very important. I, many times I've spoken about the difference between being goal-oriented in practice and, and source-oriented in practice. And I won't spend a lot of time discussing it here but sometimes when I, I do talk about finding our native approach uh, most where we feel at home with practice, whether it's with setting ourselves up with a goal and the stages of progress towards that goal, whether that really works for us or whether it is more likely to work for us that we really relax our grasp of any idea of a goal doesn't mean to say we reject the concept of there being a goal. doesn't mean to say we, we've given up on the idea of reaching a goal, but that striving to reach what we think the goal is uh, can, for many of us, take us away from where we're at. And we've got to meet ourselves where we're at if we want to be able to grow beyond where we're at. We've got to learn to receive ourselves 
in this moment if we're going to really progress, if we're always striving to reach some imagined reality in the future, some external reality, then perhaps we're never really going to meet ourselves here where we're at, and which again could be an obstruction to our progressing towards the goal. This phenomenon of always looking outwards is something I've been reflecting on recently in the context of what it means to have grown up in a society, in a culture that is very strongly affected by theistic beliefs. For followers of theistic religions, the ultimate good, the almighty, the omnipotent, is, generally speaking, fundamentally external and external to me. And, and if we have such a belief system, how does that affect us? I think this is really worth reflecting on. How do we get affected by having that belief? And even if we're not necessarily brought up in a, a strictly religious family, it's there in the culture. The concept of God, the theos, and in all theistic religions, the majority of people, seems to me, are conditioning their attention with the view that the Almighty is external. And this contrasts distinctly with my impression from having spent several years living in a Buddhist country where there isn't that assumption. There isn't that view that the authority is external. It's quite the opposite. The emphasis, in, for instance, in Buddhist practice is on the condition of the heart, of awareness itself, of consciousness itself. And the, the very first verse in, in the Dhammapada we read that first, you see, that the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our heart. This is going to have a distinct impact on how we approach the difficulties of life, I would suggest. Recently I've been looking into teachings by various current spiritual teachers in the West and, and something that puzzled me is how much so many of them seem to be commenting on what's wrong with society, what's wrong with the structures in society and the economic, the educational structures and how they need to change before we can be okay again. And how that contrasts with having lived in a Buddhist culture for several years where there, there just isn't that direction of concern. And it strikes me that it is very much to do with the dominant religion of the culture. In the West, there's the, 
emphasis on trying to solve the problems of the world by changing the conditions of the world. In Buddhist culture, the emphasis is on changing the condition of the heart. Now, I'm not saying that one culture's got all the answers over the other, because definitely we need to be looking at external structures. There's much that's going on in the external world that, that's not suitable and needs attention. However, if the emphasis is on always looking outwards, assuming that the authority, that the solution to our perceived problems is outwards, how's that going to affect us? The perception that a lot of these teachings seem to encourage is that there is a soul or there is a somebody, there is an essential self that is evolving and developing into something better. Sometimes they refer to it as consciousness, but it sounds very much like they're talking about this deep sense of self that is evolving. And where does that assumption get us? From the Buddhist perspective, believing that this self is ultimate, it's like that image I've often commented on putting ointment on the mirror if you've got a wound on your forehead and you look in the mirror and you put the ointment on the mirror that's a mistake and from the Buddhist perspective this is at the core of all the suffering that we have is this misperception of the nature of self I've spoken also recently about the six elements earth, air, fire, water, space and consciousness and and the Buddha's emphasis on developing consciousness and, and looking at what happens when consciousness, when this element is manifesting through this human being, it produces this apparent sense of self. And as the Buddha discovered, it's really essential that we understand this apparent reality. The Buddha didn't say there is no self, but he said, Look at this. Is this the self? Is the body the self? Is the mind the self? If we look, the Buddha was encouraging us to find out for ourselves. See, this is not self. That's not self. But he didn't say there is no self. In fact, he used the word self in a conventional sense, talking about oneself rightly directed. Atta samapaniticha. Oneself is rightly directed. The Buddha didn't have a problem with talking about the conventional sense of self. But he was saying this conventional sense of self, what is it really? If we assume that it's ultimate, which is one of the risks of our searching for solutions is always going outwards, we never actually question this assumption, this fundamental, deep assumption. Is this valid? This perception of me? And, and what's it based on? Really, what's it based on? Again, as I say, we're not positing some philosophical view like there is no self. I mean, there is an apparent self, just the same as like the rainbow. It looks like there's a substantial object. We take photographs of it, and it's beautiful. We like rainbows. However, we know enough about rainbows to know that the reality of rainbows is that it's a matter of light being refracted through water drops. 
it's a dynamic phenomenon. It's not a solid object. And the encouragement from the Buddhist perspective of giving emphasis of seeking inwards for the solution to our suffering is that this is the same thing with the sense of self. That it appears real. It appears substantial. And we hold it so dear. However, if we hold it too dear and we don't let ourselves question it, well, that can, that can really lead to serious amount of suffering. And then we come up with stories to avoid the suffering or distract ourselves from the suffering. And the Buddha didn't want us to come up with stories to distract ourselves from suffering. He wanted us to get interested in what's really going on here, what's actually going on. And that means letting go of our outward seeking and turning inwards. If we don't allow ourselves to question the self, then there are real difficulties with making progress in practice. Conversely, if we approach the investigation of the self with an attitude of overcoming it or conquering it or proving its non-existence, that's not the solution either, but rather getting interested in this perception, like again talking about formal meditation practice, maybe getting a little tranquility going and feeling okay about ourselves and, and then there's, we hear ourselves going, oh my meditation is going very well. Can we get interested in that perception of my meditation is going well? Can we get interested? Not judging it, not trying to intellectually prove it doesn't exist, but get interested in it. And we can get interested in it by asking, whose meditation? Who owns this meditation? As an expression of interest, not as a, as a, not based on a motivation of trying to get rid of the self. That, that's not going to help. But get interested in the reality of who's, who owns this meditation? Who owns this tranquility? Who is asking these questions? One of the results of our not making such an inquiry is that we continue to suffer from a terrible degree of delusion. And not just delusion, but also hatred and and greed. Greed, hatred and delusion are the consequences of our unawareness. We were unaware of the reality of who and what we are. When we're unaware, then the result is greed, hatred and delusion. And what a disaster that is. We don't even realise that we're caught up in greed, hatred and delusion. However, if we look at the situation we find ourselves in, we can see the greed that has created the, so much of the sadness of the world. And it's true that there's lots of food around, but it's also true that there's still lots of hungry people around. I mean, look at what's been done to the planet itself. Why is it that these 
ancient forests, acres of ancient forest uh, being felled at such a rate. Greed. Why is it that huge areas of the ocean are dead? And because all this, these chemicals and to a large degree animal waste from animal farming is pumped out into the ocean. What's that based on? Greed. It's not because people are bad. It's just that we aren't aware of what we're doing. And likewise with hatred, the political posturing between leaders in the world. What gain is there from expressing aversion towards another country? What gain is there in that? However, it happens, and it's been happening for a very long time. I mean, the evidence is there. It just doesn't work. I mean, human beings have been at war with each other and, and fighting with each other in horrendous manner for millennia. Well, where did it get us? And however, it's not because people are bad. It's because they're not aware. They don't know. Or delusion. Likewise, recently I was thinking about when I was still living in New Zealand and going to visit my parents, I think I was about 18 or 19, and, and my parents were like the typical omnivore, kiwi, and I was trying to be vegetarian. And I would remember the way that I spoke to my parents about their food and my attitude towards them. And, and they had just spent a large chunk of their life raising four kids, uh, working very hard, spending most of their waking hours looking after us. And here I was speaking in a very disrespectful, ungrateful manner. That wasn't because I was bad. It was because I wasn't aware. So this unawareness is the source of the problem. It's a disaster. Unawareness is a disaster. It's the source of so much suffering. And it's why the Buddha, after his awakening, spent so much of his time, and the many, many years that he lived after his awakening, teaching. Teaching about the dynamic of consciousness, the reality of awareness. Looking into some of these teachers that are around these days and the way they speculate about reality, like I was watching a, a dialogue recently between two very eloquent authors, public speakers, and much of what they're saying was very interesting. And then at one stage, one of them just came out and just said, well, there is no such thing as karma. He was this great being who lived in India 2,600 years ago, who saw directly the law of karma, understood the law of karma, and taught about the law of karma and rebirth. And then here's somebody highly regarded, stating that there is no such thing as karma. It seems to me that this problem comes because this conditioning of the mind to always be following thinking, to always be looking outwards for solution, rather than looking inwards, rather than feeling inwards, rather than developing our spiritual faculties so as to be get quieter and look deeper and feel deeper within, and including going right into the areas where we feel deeply unsure 
And instead of rushing to find an answer and then writing a book about it, to spend some weeks, some months, some years inquiring into that feeling of uncertainty. What is the reality of it? And not, not dismissing you know, like teachings on karma and rebirth as, as kind of primitive belief systems, but really getting interested in the dynamic of consciousness, the sixth element. The next step of progress, I like to think, for humanity is, is not more advances in medicine. I mean, already science has done absolutely amazing things. You know, your hand gets cut off in an accident and, and the doctors can reconnect it and your hand can be working again. And that's, that is amazing. Or, or we're surfing the cosmos. You know, recently they built that sophisticated tractor and flew it out to Mars and, and then filmed it trundling around on Mars. That's amazing. However, what's not amazing is the greed, hatred and delusion. That's a, that's a tragedy. That's a disaster. And so I like to think that the next big step in the development of humanity won't necessarily be more amazing things that can happen when biology and supercomputers get together, but that, that collectively, individually, we get interested in the reality of consciousness. Just because the Buddha understood the reality of consciousness 2,600 years ago, just because it's old doesn't mean to say it's not true. He was somebody who spent many years investigating and the evidence is that he discovered the reality of consciousness, the truth of awareness. And then he spent many years teaching so people could likewise understand the nature of consciousness. And then there are, there are great beings like, for instance, King Asoka in India, who was a great follower of the Buddha's teachings and, and the wonderful things that he did for the continent of India. And there's still very well-researched evidence of what he, the benefit that his reign had on India. And why is this not being taught in schools? Even in philosophy, why are the teachings of the Buddha not studied? It occurs to me, possibly, it's because there is this different orientation of effort that in the West, because of a theocentric belief system, people are conditioned to perceiving that the solution to suffering is external to themselves. They've externalized the authority. As science progresses and as humanity hopefully evolves, we'll see a shift and a recognition of the importance of getting interested in the reality of awareness itself. And if that happens, well then, maybe there's something we can do about this tragedy of greed, hatred and delusion that we all suffer from. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayang dhamma gathaya sadhukaram